Welcome to the Focus on Why podcast. I'm Amy Rowlandson and I ask my guests one simple question, why? Focusing on the importance of why, I share with you the relatable, uplifting and inspiring conversations I have with people from all walks of life. This podcast will encourage you to focus on your why to enable and empower you to achieve the success you desire. Have a purpose, have a plan, focus on why. Before we start, I would like to draw your attention to my weekly email newsletter, Friday Focus. Each Friday, I focus on one topic with one action arising. The link to sign up is in the show notes or head over to amyrolinson.com and sign up right now. Today on Focus on Why, I am joined by Marcus Dimbleby. Hello. How are you doing, Marcus? I'm doing very well. Thank you. Lovely to be here. Great. And where is here for you? Whereas here, I'm in St. Albans in Hertfordshire, just north of the M25. Perfect. So in the UK, for those who are listening abroad, I have another fellow sort of other side of the M25 to me on a diagonal almost. So yeah, all good. So what is it you're doing at the moment, Marcus? What is it I'm doing? Uh, Hopefully making a difference. I'm working with a company called Red Team Thinking. I'm a partner there and vice president with its founder and president, Bryce Hoffman. Uh, who is the author of the book Red Teaming, and he created this company about seven years ago with an intent to make challenge something of a normal capability within an organization. So everybody thinks differently, everybody wants to challenge, but often doing that, raising your head above the parapet in business, we know can often end out quite badly for individuals. So we're helping people do that in a collegiate and agreeable way. And how did that collaboration come about? Long story short, so Bryce, whilst ill at home one day several years ago, was watching the movie World War Z. Uh, the zombie, the sort of, it's called a thinking man zombie movie. And Brad Pitt goes and saves the world. And Israel at the time was defending against the zombies. And they got there and found out why. And it's because they have something called the 10th man in their intelligence force. And they said, basically, the 10th man is the individual in the room who whatever everyone else is thinking or saying is to challenge that thought or belief. And 10th Man was just a Hollywood thing that was made up, but it actually exists. It's a devil's advocacy red team that exists within the Israeli defense intelligence. So Bryce called up the IDI and said, hey, can you tell me more about this? He said, well, don't speak to us. Go and speak to your US Army. They've got the best schoolhouse in the world for this, a red teaming university. So Bryce called the Pentagon and said, hey, I'd like to come on this course. And they said, who are you? He said, I'm Bryce Hoffman, world-famous best-selling author. And they went, again, who are you? He said, I'm very persistent. Please let me come on. So he went on this course, did the full course with the US Army, learned all of these tools and techniques from red teaming, uh, which is a concept that's been around for centuries. And the Army has evolved this since pretty much 9-11. And it is exactly what we talked about earlier. Is this, it's this ability to challenge deliberately. And they teach you numerous tools and techniques and ways of working to do this. And then following that, he wrote the book Red Teaming with the intent of porting this into business, enabling executives, boardrooms, et cetera, to use this capability for their own benefit. And it's disrupt yourself rather than be disrupted by externals. So he did that. He was running that for a few years. Uh, and then I met him. A friend of mine saw Bryce at a conference and he called me and said, dude, you've got to speak to this guy. He says, everything he says is all the stuff I've been hearing from you for the last 10 years about you know, being contrarian, about challenging, about doing the right thing in the right way. So Bryce and I met and I just got a large contract with a bank in the UK. So we met and just kept in touch. I said, I can't help you right now. And then a year later, the planets aligned. He was in London for a conference. I'd just finished that contract. So we met, had dinner a couple of times, And then I flew out to New York at Christmas to do a a week with a client with him just to see how these things were working and the tools and techniques. Fell in love with it. It just worked so well. And just seeing the audience's interactivities, their response, their behaviors, and just working with Bryce was great. So after that, this was January 2019. So we just said, right, let's go all in. Are we up for being full-blown partners in this sort of January 2020? Are we up for being pretty much partners in this and let's take it global? that's what we then did. And then we were in London in March 2020, doing our first live class together. The week the balloon went up for COVID. So <laughs> that's where we got to. And then since then, the rest is history. 
So who said that daytime TV was dead and that it didn't didn't doesn't sort of help you in life? I mean, Absolutely. that is just incredible. Wow. I know. I know. So yeah, and a spoiler alert about the movie. So now now I'm going to try and watch it, but I'll try and forget what what happened. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, isn't that incredible how you you're watching something on television? And that then determines an entire course of life for your business, which is, you know, you don't necessarily expect that. But ideas come from everywhere. Absolutely. And I think that's the beauty of having this free thinking mind that these sort of people have where you see something and it inspires you. It triggers something. You think, hang on a minute, if only I did this with that, what could become of it? And then you see the snowball effect of these good ideas. And, and that's often where a lot of good things come from, isn't it? It's just a small seed that plants into someone's mind and very quickly grows into something effective. And again, thanks to your friend for connecting you, for joining those dots, because yeah. clearly what you'd been sharing had sort of been, had resonated and all he'd, he'd listened, he'd been listening to what you've been sharing for the last 10 years. Where were you working in the last 10 years? What were you doing? So I retired from the Royal Air Force. I was in the military for 20, 24 years. Uh, I retired back in 2012. And then this, this gentleman I'm talking about, a friend of mine, we met on a course uh, for leaving. We have the resettlement courses that the military put on for you. So we met on a course there uh, and we just did defence consultancy for a year, just working out what we wanted to do. We had no idea why we wanted to leave the military. We just knew we did and we didn't know what we were going to do. We just wanted to do something different. So we worked together for a year uh, using our skills in the military. But then obviously I wanted to move into the commercial world and do something non-military. Uh, so we kept in touch since then. And then from there, I joined a global consultancy, worked with them for about 18 months, uh, really started to learn and get into the sort of agile transformation program delivery world through that. Didn't really enjoy the ethics of the consultancy uh, after 18 months of working with them and the concept of putting client first wasn't really at the forefront of what they were thinking. So I left, went independent and went into a large UK bank and worked there for three, four years, became the head of agile uh, led the large agile transformation and changing the mindset and shift into this new ways of working and delivering a very different transparent you know iterative way finish there that's when I met Bryce but then I, as I said I just got another gig at another big bank and went to there so I sort of spent first couple of years with the consultancy working in government uh, and moved into financial services and then from there doing the big agile transformations enterprise-wide, which moved really much further away from the sort of coalface project program delivery into the sort of enterprise-wide understanding you know, executive behaviours, understanding how people think and how that thinking can really affect what's happening at the coalface. So you may have the most effective teams doing delivery, but if they're not supported throughout the leaders' levels of organisation in the business, then you can have a very different outcome to what the intent is. And I'm curious to understand all that time in the military and you you then talked about how the free thinking mind was triggered by something and created that snowball effect. Did you have a free thinking mind in the military? Did I? Yes. <laughs> I think I had that before I joined the military. Uh, I got that from my granddad, my grandma tells me. But yeah, I was always a sort of natural contrarian thinking differently joined the military and as soon as I joined the military my boss got me in and called me a social gadfly at one point and at the time back in the 90s there was no internet to jump on and check what that meant I thought it meant a social butterfly given my uh, mess bill every month and bar behaviors uh, but a gadfly it turns out that that's a term that came from Socrates who was the original sort of grandfather of critical thinking uh, and a social gadfly is something that zips around the place frustrating and annoying people by upsetting the apple cart challenging the status quo and that's something I've always sort of felt compelled to do I've seen things differently I've asked the questions that not that I've seen different but everybody's thinking but doesn't ask and I just can't not I can't not sit on my hands and if something needs to change or something needs to be done differently because there's a better way of doing it then I can't not say we should do this and my boss got me and I thought oh, I'm gonna be in trouble here and he said why are you doing this you're new on the squadron you're challenging everybody you're asking all these questions. I said, well, sorry, sir. I said, but when I came to my officer training, I was taught that, A, that's what an officer should be doing. You know, I felt that way. Anyway, that's why I joined the military. And 
I'm a fresh pair of eyes looking at something that's been done a certain way probably for a long time. Therefore, would you not welcome that? And he said, absolutely. And I want you to keep doing this. So every month we reported back to each other, had a conversation, and I'd bring my list of things that I didn't think were working as good as they could be. And we just started to look at, goes back to the continuous improvement. You know, every month we had, a, and from that we formed a committee that enabled these sort of insights to get brought to the table. And then we pick one or two and improve it. So it's this constant sort of Toyota style Kaizen of continuous improvement on a monthly basis, test and learn, see what works. So I was doing Agile back in the 90s, long before Agile became a thing. You know, small, effective teams with the empowerment and authority to do what they need to do to make decisions and try things and then share that when it works well. So you've ultimately got a military scrum teams, which is how effective the military has been throughout the centuries of working in that way. So that's my sort of raison d'etre, I guess, from going into the military because I was expecting to be able to do that and then being allowed to do that. But then also, like any organization, while many say they want that kind of behavior, you come across people who don't like it because people often don't like to be challenged. Their ideas are the best ideas, and that often comes with rank or seniority. And therefore, if you challenge that or try and propose something different, then that can often get you, you know, in a predicament. And I say, my behaviors, I have been stabbed in the back. I've been promoted. I've been given medals. I've been awarded. I've been fired. You know, it, So it all depends on how you interpret the individuals you're dealing with. And that's where I found the red team thinking capability you know if i've had this capability when i was a younger young officer or you know junior i'd have been far more capable because it allows as i said earlier it allows you to disagree agreeably it allows you to be professionally provocative but all done in a very collegiate way and so you come across you may be a critic but it's constructive you're not the cynic who's always saying oh that won't work or the naysayer so it's having that ability to challenge be a contrarian, but without putting your head above the parapet for fear of it being shot off, which is why so many people don't do it. And I've and I've seen that too often, unfortunately, in business and the military. Yeah. And I guess in the military, it's not just a metaphorical being shot off, putting your head above the parapet. You know, this is Correct. life or death as well. Well, that, that's the thing. And I have, you know, examples of where we've done these things where I've challenged and it was ignored and people die, you know, and therefore... I will never not challenge after several of those sort of events and one major one after that, I swear I will, I will never back down. You know, if something's not right, <clears throat> I don't care what happens. I have to raise it. Even if it's ignored, you know, you've just got to, it's my rule number one, you've got to do the right thing. And as you said, especially in the military where people's lives are you know, at stake, then it would be uh, reticent of me as an officer or anybody just not to speak up and highlight issues if you see them, because people don't often see them. You know, these things can often be, what is it we call them? It's the, the biases of planning fallacy. When if you're doing the planning, if it's your strategy, Dr. Gary Klein says you get pregnant with the plan. It becomes your baby and nobody can say anything against it. And those who do, you know, will incur your wrath. So I've always felt that understanding those individuals when they're presenting or trying to get these plans into execution, helping them see how and why it might go wrong or fail and the implications of that. So just having that collegiate way of working together, I think is far more effective. And you seem to be so certain that you were going to go into the military. There was no choice there. It was just Zero a choice. Yeah. Nine years old. I went to an air show with my dad at Church Fenton. I still remember it to this day. And it was in the days where you didn't have to have a flight line where people could work behind, you know, stand. And we were just sat there looking at the runway. And these two phantoms came from behind us and pulled up in front of us. The earth shook. And then a Vulcan came over and I was just like, wow, That's, I said, I just want to do that. I'm not bothered about flying, but I just want to be involved in all this cool stuff. And I joined the Air Cadets at 13, uh, served with them for five years, got a flying scholarship, got my pilot's license, and then joined the military straight out of school. I did six months working just while my paperwork went through. But 18 years old, I turned up at Cranwell. I went through my office training and never looked back. So yeah, it was just one of those things that, because my mum said, well, what if you don't make it? I'm like, there is no plan B. You know, Arnold Schwarzenegger style, there's no plan B. This is going to happen and I will do everything to make it so. So if I don't get through the first time, I'll be back for the second attempt, the third attempt. You know, I'll do whatever it takes. But luckily I showed up, got through first time and myself and one of my best friends still today were the two youngest and 18-year-olds to be graduating off the parade square. 
That's amazing. And and you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I love that Arnold Schwarzenegger's no plan B, because if you have a plan B, you don't focus on your plan A. Correct. So, however, with red team thinking, there are many plans. Multiple. We call it <laughs> so, planning, planning with optionality. Absolutely. Because why? Right. When I'm joining the Air Force, I know there's one outcome and there's only one outcome because it's a clear linear process. I have to go through X number of months of training. I have to tick X number of boxes for objectives and achieve a certain level of fitness. So it's clear. It's old school project management. It's a linear staging that you go through. Today, in the, not even the business world, in the world we now live in, people call it the VUCA world, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. You know, And that again came from the, the Army War College of the 80s. And everything now we do isn't linear. It's changing. It's moving rapidly. A decision you make today may be right, but could be wrong tomorrow. So you have to be able to iterate and accept that. And therefore, what we do with red team thinking is we create plans with optionality. So we make a decision knowing that today that's the best decision we could make and we put a plan in place for it. But if that decision changes tomorrow because of the circumstance, I can't continue with that plan I agreed. And also what I can't do, especially if you're an executive or a general, is wait for your team to come back to you to say, we need to replan for plan B. We need to wait for you to confirm and agree. You can't do that. Things are moving too fast. And if you wait for that delay, the opportunity is passed. And this is how businesses quickly go out of business because they're not moving fast enough. They can't adapt quick enough in this volatile world we work in. And if you've got executives still holding tight to the reins who are highly risk averse and won't let go, in the military, we called it mission command. or Ausgrad tactics, the Germans called it, is where you delegate responsibility to the lowest common denominator where the best decisions can be made. And if you think that best decision making happens in the C-suite, you're a fool. Seriously, you are a fool in this day and age if you think you can do that. And Ian Cotton, the uh, recent CEO of Centric British Gas, he did say in 2018, March, he made a statement and he said, you know, things are moving too fast. He says, and I don't think that leadership politicians today can keep up with it. And a year later, they'd lost a billion in profit and he stood down. So he's almost forecasting his own you know, demotion. But it's a real clear statement to me at the time of what's happening in the world today. You know, there's no such thing as a super CEO of the 80s and 90s anymore rolling, rolling with it and running the system. C-suites alone can't deal with this anymore. The complexity that we're facing and the decisions we need, and this is where diversity inclusion actually resonates with me. You need diversity of thought. You know, not a bunch of executives sat in the, in the boardroom. You need diversity of thought, which comes from the span of your organization, different individuals, different backgrounds, experiences, ethnicity, understanding, gender. Bring them together, source the wisdom of that crowd, and you're going to just unleash greatness. And that's for me is what we enable is enabling those individuals to speak up, to have an opinion, to be heard. And there's not one good idea. There's a number of great ideas that brought together, you know, you synthesize into a great hybrid outcome. And that's your answer today. But we also know that tomorrow, we're aware of what might change. And we've already built in optionality to pivot instantly. So if we're doing this tomorrow, plan A, plan A, plan A, red light warning comes up, right pivot to plan B. We don't pause and go into paralysis while we wait for executive Bob and director Susan to come in and go, right, let's go back to the whiteboard team. Those days are gone. And I think that's the evolutionary shift that people are going through today and trying to get their mindset around that way of working. And do they find it easy to adapt? Hell no. Hell no. Old habits die hard. And the last three years, the Business Agility Institute, they do a great report every year. And the number one challenge to business agility, to organizational wide change, isn't the tools, isn't the method, isn't agile or scrum or whatever, isn't funding, it's leadership. And it's because, as I said, old habits die hard. So you've got this group of individuals who've gone through the 80s and 90s and noughties with their way of working using linear program management. Reports on a weekly basis, beautiful rag statuses, everything's green, watermelon reporting until it turns red at the last minute. But they've had this real tight mechanism for control. And that's fine because that's how it worked when you were doing linear delivery. 
But as I said, if you're now doing this sort of really, you know, adaptive way of working where things are changing often, that process doesn't work. But to shift that mindset that's grown up with that, that's been institutionalized over time is really difficult. And it's not that the executives don't want to do that. We coach many executives who get it. Like, right, we need to shift. But it's like anything, that's now become muscle memory for them, a way of working. So there's a great book by Barry O'Reilly called Unlearn. And it's no good teaching somebody something new. Because while they may learn it, while they may take it on board, what tends to happen is in the default process where you are under stress, what you do is revert back to your old ways of working. And there's a few great, you know, mind sort of tests you can do where you ask somebody 20 questions and you plot where they sit on the graph. Then you ask them the different 20 questions which are under duress and you see how far those two plots are apart. And if they're very far apart, that shows how different a person is when you put them under stress. And when you do this with many executives today, they are, you, know, you can't put a 10 pence piece over the two. They are a five pound note might just touch them. They're very far apart. And they default back to these old ways of working because that's their comfort zone. So you have to have to teach them why those things are now no longer good and bad because the brain will then register that and understand that they're the wrong things to be doing before you then start to teach them new things. And it's one of those things where I can come in and, you know, if you do the consultancy model where I'll come in, I'll tell you what you need to do. You'll nod your head and go, yes, great. And then the day later, you'll forget about it because I told you what to do. Whereas what red team thinking allows and what the tools and techniques allows you to surface and see things for yourself, why they're not working, why it's wrong, why it no longer will do what you think it should do. And by doing that, your brain is then absorbing that and going, okay, that no longer works because, and I understand it. And now what does work, show me that. And then you learn something different and that's now stored and you do it enough times. And this is why we say what we try and teach is what's a practice rather than a process. So when something goes wrong, you don't pull off the tick box exercise and tick, 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 tick. Because what tends to happen then is you say, right, have we gone through the process? Yes, I've ticked 10 boxes. That doesn't mean you've got the outcome you're trying to achieve. You're so focused on the process versus the outcome. Whereas with red team thinking is it's not a tick box process. It's just a set of tools and techniques that become part of your muscle memory. So it becomes a practice. So when you're on the phone with somebody, you receive an email. When somebody asks you a question, instantly your brain will kick into this thought process of go, hang on a minute. They said this to me. I need to put this through multiple filters and you do it without thinking rather than the knee-jerk reaction of the answers no, what's a question that you tend to see in a risk-averse, you know, organization. And I think that's the evolution. And going back to your question of is it hard to do, it's not hard to do once you start to do it and learn it, but it's hard to do if you don't know how. And it's one of those things where it, we, we did a contract for a lady a couple of years ago in the company, and I submit the contract, it's like for, for four days. And she's like, I was expecting like a three-month contract for seven figures. I'm like, no, I said, if I can't teach you all this stuff you need to know in a week, I'm, I've failed. She's like, what, is it that easy? I said, trust me. I said, the first afternoon, you will be using what I teach you the next day with your teams without any support from me and getting massive effect, you know, immediate e efficacy and instant applicability. Trust me. And like, you get the skeptical look and really? I'm like, trust me, 100%. That's why we do this. And what we've done is taken, everyone knows the why and the what. We all know why we need to do something. We all know what needs to get done. Diversity and inclusion. We all know why we need diversity and what it is. We all know now why we need inclusion. But when you talk to people, how do you enable that? How is that thing a reality in your organization? Because when I talk to the individual who you brought in through your diverse agenda and they're included, they don't tell me they're included. They're included, but they're not heard. And they tell me it's tokenism. We're just brought in to tick a box. How does that individual now feel? How are you enabling that voice to be heard and actually listened to? You get these blank looks because very few people can give you the answer to that. They just think they've got a nice policy that states this, but doesn't actually become what we talk about an outcome. You've created the output. You've ticked all the boxes to meet the quotas and to meet HR principles. But the outcome at the coalface hasn't changed. And if you've got that at the coalface and you've got these old school mindsets, behaviors at the leadership level, you've got almost a recipe for disaster. And that's what we're seeing with many companies. Add to that then the volatility of what's going on today. How does that then evolve quickly to enable the outcomes you need? Yeah, I I, I hear you, and I, I'm just 
I was just distracted by using the the phrase coalface because I mean that's an old metaphor. We need a new metaphor to reflect this new new way exactly. of thinking here. Yeah. In terms of the neuron science that's involved, I mean it, it is. You're talking a lot about reprogramming and recalibrating the way that the brain is working. This is helping with habits it's as, as you you know it's hard because the brain will go to that immediate this has worked for me before it's not great but it's it's where i'm going to go so it is about retraining and re reconnecting different synapses here 100 i mean you know adam smith convinced us all for 300 years that we were all rational thinkers you know unless we were influenced by love emotion or lacking information then we have this rational thought we're all rational human beings where we're not you know, and Daniel Kahneman came along, yeah, Nobel Prize Prize, you know, author of Thinking Fast and Slow and recently Noise, just brilliant. And he just said, look, the machine, the, the brain is a machine for jumping to conclusions. Do not kid yourself. Your brain will respond to inputs and jump up and down as it sees fit. And we see this more and more today with social media, mainstream media, television, a comment. I can influence people with something I say, and I can influence the same person the next day with something completely different because their brain adapts and reacts to it. And what Kahneman talks about is system one and system two thinking. System one is what your brain defaults to. 95% of the time, rapid, instinctive, but error-prone thinking because that's how we were born with it centuries ago. You know, you need to be system one thinking when you're out on the plains avoiding saber-toothed tigers. When you're crossing the road, you need system one thinking to help you avoid a car that doesn't stop at the lights. But going back to what I said earlier, when we're doing that in complexity, it's dangerous because you're reacting and making decisions that are reactive rather than, for those who know that the Kneving framework, understanding how we respond and how do we sense. And Bryce, he runs a thinking, the thinking leader podcast and he says their strap line is, bad leaders react, good leaders plan, and great leaders think. And yes, we know there's a time to react when we're in chaos. When the enemy's inside the wire, we have to instantly react. But if you do that by default with everything you do, it's a very dangerous outcome. And I think as Kahneman said, then what we need is system two thinking, which is far more logical, considered, thought out, and far less error prone. And it's not as slow as people think. This is the problem with executives today. The, the pace and the pressure is we have to be fast. Speed's the number one metric. You've got any organization, the vanity metrics are on the wall. Here's how fast we're going. Great, but the faster you go, you're increasing risk. You're decreasing morale. What's your quality like? You know, they don't see that this is a multi-lever approach to metrics. So if you have system two, it takes a far more structured, logical approach. And what we're proving with red teaming, it doesn't have to be slow as in days and weeks. These things can be done in minutes, hours. You don't have to take weeks and weeks of planning to go through these capabilities and get them effective to get the outcomes you need. So with red teaming, does it sit with your ethics? Is it clients first now? 100%. And then it's the people within that client first. You know, and we, we work, we've learned very quickly that we always get the top cover before we go in anywhere. Because again, what red teaming does can scare people. You know, you get executives who are talked about who are precious about their plans. If they find out that some manager somewhere else is bringing in this capability that might undermine them or potentially challenge their plan, and they're not aware of how it works, then that can end quite badly and it can come in like a wrecking ball for the poor individual who's well-intended. So we always make sure that we engage with the executive, give them the understanding of what this is about. You know, and red teaming doesn't make a better plan. It makes your plan better. That's the whole point. You're dissecting a plan and therefore looking at all its constituent parts and putting it back together to make it far stronger. Obviously, then the sum of, you know, strength is in the sum of its parts, analyzed and brought back together again. And therefore, people understand that it's a force for good rather than the red police or the red audit, almost. And from an ethics perspective, this is why I do this. It's, you know, all these new ways of working, I call it 21st century ways of working, don't work with 20th century ways of thinking. We've got to bring our thinking into the 21st century. But we're not saying it's a 21st century way of thinking. It's multi-century. As I said, this thing started in 400 BC with Socrates. Now, this has been going around through numerous years. The Prussians, the Vatican, the Israelis during the Yom Kippur War, military, 
CIA. It's this evolution. Because ultimately, as you mentioned earlier, it's all about how our brain works. And the brain is the least evolved part of our bodies since it was you know, created. So therefore, how do you rewire your brain to stop it being system one, to stop it being reactive? Because the brain's lazy. We as humans are lazy. We will see the quickest shortcut. It's called satisficing. The first thing that comes to our mind that works good enough will go with it. And that sometimes is good enough. But when you're again working in complexity, we have to be far more measured and understood in what we're doing to achieve the outcomes we need rather than reacting accordingly. And therefore responding, thinking gets you a far better way out, but also using the people you have around you to enable their brains to kick in as well is just going to be far more productive for you. And the hybrid capability that that creates is without doubt the way we should be working going forward. Yeah, it's, it's actually quite scary. I, as part of doing some prep work for your red team thinking course, I looked at how many different biases there are and it's incredible. And they're operating at so many different levels that you have no idea. So when I looked at this and I, I mean, I counted 188 at one point and then I was like, okay, there's too many now. (laughs) This is crazy. But it, it is true. The brain is designed ultimately to keep you safe as a human. And in terms of it being lazy, maybe efficient. And sometimes those those shorter routes, it thinks they are efficient. But actually, as you say, it's it's going with the first thing that comes and go, hey, I've got the answer. Here you go. Off you go. Yeah. And it makes sense. Absolutely. And I think that's where this, where Dave Snowden created the Kneffin framework, which helps you understand where you are. You know, are we in chaos? Are we in complexity? Are we in complicated? You know, what do you need to be thinking? And if you don't understand that first, that's why people are making the wrong decisions because they're applying a different mindset that's required to the different zone they're in. So, you know, if you're going to the beach for the day, you don't be taking your ski gear. You know, you want to be taking your beach wear. You know, likewise, you don't find yourself a mountain in your speedos and flip-flops when, you know, it's minus 15. So it's understanding what's required and bringing that capability together. And I think the whole concept of red team thinking, it's not an off-the-shelf toolkit. This is a It's a mindset first that then comes with the set of tools and techniques that enable that mindset shift. Because as you mentioned, what we're talking about here is a cognitive capability. And what it allows you to do once you've done that is it allows you to engage critical thinking, enable distributed decision-making, that mission command that I talk about, then also encourage diversity of thought. And if you've got those three things going on in your organization, if your organization is a group of individuals who are thinking critically, using their brains as intended. If you've then got distributed decision-making so they are empowered, empowered is a great buzzword, isn't it? Psychological safety and empowerment, two of the biggest buzz phrases of the latest five years. Everybody's saying it, everybody's throwing it around, but actually the reality at the coalface is that it doesn't exist. So how do you enable people to feel safe speaking up? That's what the tools and techniques allow. And how do you get them to feel empowered to make decisions? Well, you have to enable them. Talk about David Marquet talks about, you know, the submarine commander, if you've seen the uh, Turn the Ship Around video, he talks about how do you push down control? Because you know, command and control, you know, as Blackadder would say, it's a dirty word. People don't like command and control. I love it. I was a C2 command and control officer for years in the military. But people, again, misunderstand it. It's linked with an and. It's not welded together. So you need command to be retained at the level it should be, but you can push then control down to wherever it needs to be in the organization, best exercised. Because if you don't have control, you have chaos. And this is the problem with these big new programs, agility, et cetera. Organizations think, hey, if we're doing agile, I can give autonomy to everybody and we're off to the races. This is great. Full autonomy across the business. But if you haven't given those individuals clarity and capability to do that, then you get chaos. And that's kind of what's happened. 75% of agile transformations are failing. That's why agile is not the silver bullet that the coalface do or the frontline workers do. It's a capability that the whole organization has to embrace. So you can't sit at the top telling everyone else to go and do agile without you yourself shifting your mindset and the culture of the organization to enable this way of thinking differently and operating it that way rather than offloading with buzzwords of empowerment. Because there's nothing more frustrating than being empowered, but not physically being capable or clear on what you're doing, because that just leads to frustration by the individuals. And 
that's why we get the churn rates we often see in organizations. Yeah, so where does the purpose piece sit for you? Because you've talked about clarity, capability, culture, and all of that for me indicates purpose. So where does purpose come from? When we were in London in March 2020, doing our live class for the week, brilliant, great atmosphere, good people, me and Bryce working together for the first time, and then the COVID blew in up on Thursday. Bryce panic booked all his flights to get back out the country into the US before Trump shut the airlines down on Sunday. And we spent Saturday morning, and I'll never forget this, we were sat in the Horse Guards Hotel having brunch. And we said, right, this has been great. Shall we close the business down today? You know, we'd lost, we were going to China, Vietnam and Dallas in the summer with clients, all cancelled. And we were like, look, we're now about to go into this pandemic. This isn't going to be cured in a month. What we do is going to disappear. And we said, okay, let's consider that. You know, so sort of did a pre-mortem, worst case, what could go wrong here? And then we said ex exactly what this is about, the purpose. Why are we doing this? What does this enable? And the purpose of all of what we do is to enable people to be themselves, to use their brains to the best of their ability to get the right outcomes for everybody, for the goal, not for the individual. You know, this isn't one of those selfish things or you can use it individually. It's how do we collectively bring all of the individuals who can have a say and should have a say to the table to get their input and then synthesize that to get a great outcome rather than executive Bob says, here's what we're doing, follow me. That doesn't work anymore. So our purpose was we can do this because we have to, you know, and especially looking into COVID, the way the world's going to go now, and as we've seen, and it was the best decision we made was if ever this was going to be needed, it's going to be needed now. So we spent three months pivoting everything online, creating a very new way of working for ourselves and how we deliver this, you know, virtually. And as I said, that was the best thing we ever did because that allowed us a global reach. It allowed us to have classes where literally we've had people in Australia through to Canada and all time zones in between. So the learning you get from the individuals, if you want diversity of thought, that's how you get it. You know, the, the number and levels of individuals we have on the courses and the classes. And likewise with our clients, when we were going to do the Dallas gig, we were supposed to be flying into Dallas, but they were then going to fly in eight other people from literally across the road, Chile, Ireland, Moscow, crazy, the costs of that alone. But we did it all online and literally they got a coffee, jumped on with us for three hours and then went back to the day jobs. No travel, no hotels. So the carbon footprint reduction, the time reduction, the stress on people, the cost. And then we sort of realized we'd struck gold with that model of this is what people, it's not only what we want, because we thought the clients would still want us to be on site, which is nice to have. But turns out people don't. They're quite happy because they see the value of the delivery online and how we do it, really effective, allows people to stay in place where they need to be. And it just gives people that insight to, you know, so-and-so's working in Moscow. The other individuals in New York, the other individuals in Paris, and they get to see a different perspective rather than coming into an office together, meeting quickly, and then just having that discussion and debate using the tools and techniques that they have to see a very different way of thinking. And I think that's often misunderstood. And certainly in the hybrid world we're now in, the cultural differences of people cannot be dismissed. You know, and I just think, it's a lack of understanding and appreciation of that in many organizations. And these tools and techniques allow that to come through in a very synthesized way, but also a very safe and sort of scattergun way. All these different ideas come in and you see people go, wow, I never, ever contemplated that input in my wildest dreams. You know, there's a great Chinese proverb that says, you know, none of us is as smart as all of us. And all two heads are better than one, and you're getting these different inputs from people. And then, you know, Thomas Schelling again said, you know, it doesn't matter how smart, how well educated, how senior you are, there are certain things that will never occur to you. And I, I do a lot of work with my kids. I've got two teenage daughters, and I'll run plans by them. I say, What do you think of this? And a little 15-year-old will come out with something just so off the wall that was never a thought in my head. And that's great. And that's the whole purpose of bringing all these different people together to enable. Um, why would you not want that? 
you're a C-suite and you know you've got a thousand people working in your organization, why would you not want that diversity of thought enabled and firing on all cylinders every day? Yeah, absolutely. As, as you said earlier, you know, it's evolving so quickly, you can't keep up. And as the Centrica CEO just couldn't keep going with what was happening. I want to take you back to that leaving course that you went on after leaving the military. And you said you spent a year there or a year working with someone yes. just to sort of work out what would have happened if you'd known about red team thinking then? What would have happened? Yeah, that's a, that's a very interesting question. What would have happened if I'd known about them then? I'd have probably approached Bryce directly. I'd have found out how. If I'd have found the book, I'd have approached him and said, hey, here's me. Uh, but I'm glad I didn't because what I'm quite a unique position where I've left the military. So I've got all my military experience and then I went into business. And then I've got, you know, so when I met Bryce, I had seven years of business experience, you know, executive down, not just doing a job at the coalface. I was very fortunate enough through consultancy, through the roles I had within the banking sector to be exposed to some quite high levels. So that breadth of understanding and knowledge in both camps, if you will, was really beneficial. And again, because red teaming is seen as a military thing, if you just have a bunch of military guys show up, and this is where a lot, of the, a lot of the companies who set themselves up as military consultants, but all they've got is military background, that often never really sits well with executives because they'll love a war story, but if all your constant stories are war stories, you know, it doesn't really resonate after the first conversation. So you know, if you're trying to do long-term relationship building, you have to bring in knowledge and expertise of other organizations. So while I wish I'd had that capability, I'm a big believer in everything happens for a reason. And just like I met Bryce, but I couldn't do it because I just got this other big gig. That finished at the perfect time. He was in London. I'm not so much, a, you know, I'm not a believer in fate, but I just do think things happen for the right reasons and you get to where you are because of what you've done. And if I'd have met Bryce when I did and we'd gone into red teaming before I got into that business world, I don't think we'd have been impactful as we are now with the expertise we now bring to clients as one of our friends we were with Ellie, she came through the training. She said, this is agnostic by sector, level, and role. And as I said earlier, whatever business you're in, you're in the people business. So anybody, whatever sector you're working in, and we work with military, we've been working with the firefighters in America, NYPD counterterrorism, banking executives, photo, you know, big comms executives, anybody at all levels and then within those organizations whatever role you're filling whether it's a frontline delivery team or whether a middle management or executive and whatever level you're at you can use and take these tools and use them to your best effect and i think that's the power of them and having that capability across the organization rather than a, a thin thing a thin single red team at the sort of two-thirds up level is far more powerful and as we've evolved from sort of doing a red team to red team thinking, I've got the saying is you don't need a red team, you need everybody thinking like a red teamer. And then how that manifests into the sort of what I call it, the stickiness of leadership. Doesn't matter how great you are, if you're a phenomenal leader and you're in leading, if you step away or if you're taken out for whatever reason, and the organization can't, contact, can, can, can't continue without you, then you failed as a leader because you've not enabled the stickiness of your capabilities to evolve through the organization. So Steve Jobs, you know, great sad loss to Apple. Apple hasn't dropped since he's gone. Yeah. Bezos with Amazon, they, they were upskilling people to become them at every level. And you look at Nelson in the Battle of Trafalgar, you know, he was shot going into the fight. That didn't mean everything fell apart. You know, the general doesn't have to be on the battlefield for the army to win. And that's the organizational capability that you need is that all your individuals are operating and firing on all cylinders as if you are sat on their shoulder. You know, so they've got the little Jiminy Cricket on their shoulder. And it's, you know, if this is happening, what would the CEO do right now? You're empowered to think that way. And when I worked in the, the, the big bank in the UK, my boss there was great. We got this usual annual budgeting and we sat down and said right first thing imagine all this money on the table right, x million pile up in front of us it's our money 
not the businesses, not the shareholders. It's ours. And I want you to think about that every time you wanted to spend £50 to £5 million. Are you doing the right thing with it? If the CEO was in the room, what would he say? And just that, having that, again, muscle memory, that's a question that just popped up every time you're doing something. If this was mine, would I do this? And that's what helps having your own business as well. Apply that same rigor and passion to the thing you're doing, whether it's yours or someone else's. And you can't often go wrong by behaving and thinking in that way. So how are you going to disrupt yourself, Marcus? What, what's, what's next on the horizon? How are we disrupting ourselves? As you saw from the course, we, uh, Bryce likes to say we eat our own dog food. <laughs> I used to say drink our own champagne. He says, yeah, but there's no, there's no hardship in that. I was like, yeah, good point. So <laughs> how, we disrupt ourselves constantly because, and this is where the difference is from red teaming to red team thinking. You know, red teaming is create a red team in your organization. Ten individuals will red team your plans for you. And they just use the same process. Red team thinking is everybody is daily applying these core concepts and tools and techniques to whatever they're facing. And then when you do need a red team, you handpick a select few from the organization so you get the diversity as required. And through doing that, we speak to different people. So we have a certain number of tools and techniques we use, but I call it the 80-20. They're all of 80% capability and structure, foundational concepts. But the 20% is how we then bespoke it to your requirements because everybody's different. And this is, again, why the big agile things fail and why these scripted ways of working fail. Because you're different to me and I'm different to the next person. And organization X is very different to organizational Y and everybody in it is different. Stop treating people like sheep and clones and start treating them all like absolutely unique individuals with a massive offering that you've yet to unearth. And therefore, you can evolve that capability and benefit from it hugely. And every time we go through our courses and our training, the feedback, we, every single time I teach a course, it's different from the last one to a degree because everything evolves. And the feedback we get from people, we tweak it, we amend, and we disrupt ourselves that way. And then also as we grow as a business, and as I said, we've gone from you know, small to working globally, how do we scale that? So we're going through numerous processes now of disrupting our current thought process of running a small business to how, wow, this, this is going to become a big company. And the mindset shift between those two things is very, very different. So constant disruption on that front. Amazing. And I still, I still love the fact that he just rang the Pentagon just as you do. You know, it's just, it's like, yeah, just ring the Pentagon. I'm coming in. Interesting to understand, though, that red teaming is not still going on in the army. Very, very. Do you think it'll come back? It is. It is coming back. Yeah, without a doubt. The, the MOD just released uh, the third edition of their book. The US is doing this. Yeah, it goes back to budget cuts. Donald Trump was not a fan of investment in humans, if you will. You know, I'd rather spend money on the big shiny stuff that goes bang. Uh, and the, the, the decision to close down the Red Team University in the US was not, you know, not taken well by the majority. And we're, again, we're talking with numerous organizations who want this and we've delivered already back in the last year to different military organizations because they are frustrated that that was one of the few things that was A, highly valuable and B, the intent was to create an intellectual insurgency to get people, you know, the special forces do this by default. This is how they operate and work in these small teams. And the, the general who brought this back in, Schumacher was intending to bring red teaming into the military to create this intellectual insurgency so people could think and challenge and ultimately affect mission command. So it's quite ironic that the military wants this mission command capability, but then removes the ability to train people to think that way. Because as we've seen, people don't like to be challenged. You know, whatever rank you are, and we saw in the US as a US Marine Corps Lieutenant Colonel, under a gag order because he challenged. He said, I deserve and demand accountability from our seniors because of what happened in Afghanistan. And they don't like that. And people come together to, you know, swarm around those individuals and silence them. And it's the same in business. It's the same in politics and government. So it's how do you enable individuals to speak out through that? And we've seen recently with the UK pandemic response, there's been numerous reports released from the House of Lords and from the public health services about, you know, why are we not wargaming these plans? Why are we not red teaming and challenging these plans before we have to use them? Because when we do put them into effect, they're failing. 
but because we've not exercised them before, and the one good thing the military does is, you know, we train as we fight, fight as we train. So when it becomes real, you've been doing it all along in your training. So it's exercising these things for the reality. How many businesses have business continuity plans that are sat on the shelf, covered in dust and never been opened or exercised? And then when you do open them, 80% of the organization's BCPs, you turn to Annex D, pandemic response plan, blank with a TBC in the middle of it, never done. So it's just exercising these and it's the normalcy bias. People don't think that anything bad could happen. So it's planning for the worst before it happens to make sure that you're in a far better position to respond to it when it does occur, if it occurs. Yeah, absolutely. So I can see how you fell in love with it. It's fabulous and it's got so much scope. It, 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 I can see you doing this for the rest of your life almost. Yeah, yeah. every day. <laughs> every day fantastic yeah. and evolving it evolving the thinking and evolving the intellectual insurgency of 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 its capabilities for sure marcus how could people get in contact with you so follow me on linkedin marcus dimbleby or red team thinking on linkedin as well and then our website is just redteamthinking.com and you also I mentioned see. the podcasters earlier as well yes it's on if you go to redteamthinking.com the banner at the top We've got the podcast there coming out weekly. Uh, we've got some exciting live TV coming out in uh, the new year as well, following on from the podcast, which we're looking forward to. Fabulous. Well, thank you, Marcus, for sharing why you do what you do and for bringing forth the red teaming or the red team thinking perspective about how it's going to make a difference. And I can see how when companies adopt this, it's going to make a huge difference, a huge ripple. And as you said, a snowball effect will just keep on filtering through all of the different ways of working that we need to adapt to. How would you like to leave the episode today? How would I like to leave it? I just like to say to anybody out there who's got the opportunity to enable their people is to give them the capabilities to use their brain in the way they want them to, because ultimately, who thinks wins. Thank you for listening to Focus on Why with me, Amy Rowlandson. To show your appreciation and to help other listeners understand what value you have received from tuning in today, please leave me an Apple Podcasts five-star review. Remember, the conversation doesn't end here. To keep it going, connect with me on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook or Twitter or join the inspiring, uplifting and positive Focus on Why Facebook group. All the links are in the show notes. Have a purpose, have a plan, focus on why.